The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Thanks, Aaron, and the rest of the worship team for leading us to the throne and just giving us a guided tour of God's glory in song and dropping us off so that we can now have our hearts set to worship through listening to God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I was asked again this week, how long do you think it's going to take you to preach through Romans? And I said, I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about finishing chapter 1 right now. So we uh, have made our way all the way to verse 2, and we will get no further than that today. Romans chapter 1, let's remember what Paul says at the beginning, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. There's a word that I'm not sure if you've noticed if you've been to the Christian bookstore recently or looked at any Christian book catalogs. It it seems to appear over and over and over on the fly leaves of contemporary books. It's all over theological perspectives. It's in preaching. It's in ministry. It's in conferences. It's a word that appears to have credibility and credulity credulity and authority. This is a word that people think if we put this word in front of any concept, it will instantly give it some kind of attractiveness. A zing. It's a word that makes the contents attractive of anything. It's a word that makes the content appealing. It's An interesting word that really can serve as an enemy of our souls and of our theology. This word is simply the word new. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with new things. I like new things. I wish I could bottle up the fragrance of a new car smell. Don't you? Put it in my old car and just make it smell like that. I like new things. I like opening things. It's almost Christmas time. We like opening new things. It's rare that you give someone something old for Christmas and wrap it up. There's nothing wrong with something that's new. But when it comes to theology, we need to be very, very suspicious of ideas that come in as new, especially in the face of thousands of years of church history. There's the new perspective on Paul, which we'll get to when we get to chapters 3 to 5 to Romans, on justification. In other words, what we've thought about being saved has been wrong after all. Now there's a new perspective on what it means to be justified before God. There's the new hermeneutic, a new way of interpreting the Bible, which really answers the question of what the Bible means by what does it mean to you There's the new homiletic, the new way of preaching, this new philosophy that says that the authority of a preacher is in the experience he creates in the moment of the preaching in the heart of the listener, not in a separate entity, an alien authority in the Word of God. Then there's the new emerging church, which has made a movement out of taking old liberal ideas, wrapping them up in new words, as a fresh way of understanding the gospel and theology. All to say, be very careful when you hear that there is something new theologically that's not stood the test of time. That doesn't mean that there aren't new songs and new uh, 
experiences and fresh understandings of worship, what it means is be careful if someone says, what we've done all along has been wrong. Gospel is not new. The gospel is an ancient idea. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. The first generation of Christians had lots of questions regarding the Christian faith. You can imagine how they would have been suspicious of it. Perhaps the the question was related to its newness. What is this new sect of Judaism? For the Jews, for example, they were rightly suspicious of this new way of understanding the Messiah. The hope of the kingdom of God. How could they trust this new understanding of the, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, his new covenant that Jesus promised in his blood and this New Testament of books that were about to be added to the ancient Scriptures. How could they possibly trust it? For Gentiles, they were right to be suspicious of this new Jewish sect. When they believed the gospel, were they becoming Jews? Christian Jews? What were they actually believing in? So at the very beginning of the epistle of Romans, in the very opening chapter, in the second verse, Paul provides incredible assurance to Jews and Gentiles alike, then and now alike, that the gospel had not been invented a few years earlier. That the gospel hadn't even been invented during Jesus' lifetime. That the gospel wasn't some new idea by a guy who grew up in Nazareth and taught in Jerusalem. The gospel has ancient roots that extend all the way back to our first parents in Genesis. Back in the garden, the gospel was predicted and to a certain extent explained. The gospel has a long lineage of truth. The gospel is the fulfillment of promises made and the expressions of promises kept. As Paul opens up his book, this epic tome to the Romans, explaining the the gospel itself, justification by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, we're going to learn from him the same thing he was teaching them, that the gospel has very ancient and very important truths that extend all the way back, like I said, to Adam and Eve. Now, tracing throughout the thought of Paul throughout these first seven verses is, is really interesting. Um, as typical of Paul, he's a footnoter. He's a parenthetical speaker and talker and preacher and writer. He, he, he says something, and before he can even finish the sentence, he ends up giving explanations of things that need fuller explanation before he can even go on. This first section, these first seven verses, actually contain that kind of thinking. He says, Paul, he can't even go on with that. He has to tell you who Paul is. Paul, footnote, Servant of God, uh, Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God, he can't go on without explaining that, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, really what you have to do is connect the end of verse 1 with the beginning of verse 3. Set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. But before he can even go on beyond that, he says, by the way, speaking of a son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh? Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom... Do you see what he's doing? It's, if, you, if you're into diagramming, and I hope you are, uh, if we have English teachers who teach diagrams, 
may your tribe increase. I remember doing diagrams, Mrs. Copeland, in my 10th grade year of high school, and I remember just hating diagramming. And we did it the old-fashioned way with stilts and you know, positive slashes, and, and all of these is really involved. If you were to diagram Paul's first sentence here in Romans, it would have so many springs and, and offshoots. Diagramming is important, kids. Listen to your English teachers. And if they don't teach it, I, I just have a challenge for you. Go into class this week and say, would you teach us how to diagram sentences? See how that works out for you. But for our time today, he, look at the end of one and the beginning of three. He's talking about the gospel of God, the good news of God. What's the good news of God? Concerning his son. In the middle of that sentence, though, he has this little parenthesis, this parenthetical expression that is verse 2, which, speaking of the gospel of God, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in this one simple parenthesis, he gives us the ancient roots of the gospel. If you want an outline to follow along this morning, we're going to find two ancient roots of the gospel. This is critically important for Paul. They were hearing over and over, Judaism, 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 Christianity, which is rooted in Judaism. How does it relate? How does it connect? Is this something new? And Paul says, actually, actually, it's not anything new. This was an ancient idea that didn't surface when Jesus began walking around on the earth. He was fulfilling long-ago-made promises. He actually spent the better part of his life teaching that he was the fulfillment of prophecies and promises and prophets that had come long before him, fulfilling themselves in who he was and what he did. Two ancient roots of the gospel. The first is in the first phrase of verse 2. The gospel was promised through the prophets. The gospel was promised through the prophets. As Paul begins here, he says, which he, that is God, the gospel of God, he promised beforehand. He promised beforehand through how? Through what? Through who? Through his prophets, his preachers, his teachers. Paul begins this amazing letter to Romans. He highlights this crucial position of humility that a Christian leader must possess in verse 1. He says, I'm just a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm just called as one who is sent. I'm just set apart for the gospel of God. Why does he do that? In the first verse, in the first sentence, he makes sure to put the authority of what he's going to say not in himself. This is something that was given to me as a task to do, as a, as a promise to proclaim, as good news to extend. It didn't come from me. It actually is a long, old promise, a long, old message, which he concerns himself in verse 2. In light of his testimony, Paul puts no glory in himself. And what a testimony he had. We, we read his testimony this morning in our scripture reading when he was before Agrippa. He said, I was taught by the best. I was a student of Gamaliel. Everyone knew I was not only the smartest Jew around, I was the one on the greatest track to moving toward leadership. And yet that opening sentence is drenched in humility. He says, come on, don't believe me because I'm me. Why should we believe you? Why should we believe the gospel of God? Verse 2 begins to answer that question that will extend through the next 16 chapters. So, if the gospel does not find its source in Paul, where did it come from? That's what causes Paul to write verse 2. 
It's unclear whether Paul has any specific passages, by the way, in mind here, or specific prophets in mind here. But it's a theme he's going to come back to, and in looking how he come, at how he comes back to this theme, I think you have insights into what was informing Paul to say what he says. Look down at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Now we find out the ancient nature of this righteousness declared in the gospel to us. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Look over at chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this demonstration of God giving us His righteousness in the gospel, taking on our sin at the cross, that was demonstrated long ago in the law and in the prophets. Look over, look over at chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? We'll get there in a minute. He goes back and says, well, what's the Scripture say about this? What does the Old Testament, that's what he means by this, what does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The promise made to Abraham is the anchor promise that Paul uses throughout the entire epistle. Look down at chapter 6. I mean, excuse me, uh, verse 6 of chapter 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness. Now he's claiming the promise of David here. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes, he brings Moses in. And look at chapter 15, verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. See, this is, this is amazing. By the time he gets to 15, he's used so much Old Testament scripture. They had to be asking, what about the Gentiles who don't have that connection? He says, actually, God made provision an expression of his love for and extension of the salvation to the Gentiles, even in the Old Covenant, even in the Old Testament, was written, which was written to the Jews. Verse 21, chapter 15, as it is written. The gospel comes to us as fulfillment of promises made and promises kept to Abraham. We can, all, we can go all the way back to Eve. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you how, how far this extends back. In Genesis 1, as you know, God created the heavens and the earth and everyone who was going to be made, was going to come through those first parents. Chapter 2 goes back and, and rehearses the details of the creation of man especially. And then in chapter 3, we find that something goes woefully wrong. Man sins. God makes provision by killing an animal, covering their sin. And then down in chapter 3, verse 15, to the very first couple... He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's known by theologians as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, that a woman was going to have a man, a human descendant, who would crush the purpose and the power of the enemy. Now, 
I have, we have to look over at Luke chapter 24 for a minute. I want you to look with me for a moment into the nature of the promised gospel from the Lord's lips himself. You remember what's happening in, in Luke. Uh, Jesus has, has risen from the dead. He's uh, making various and sundry appearances to people around Jerusalem and will be up in Galilee. And in Luke chapter 24, we find an amazing encounter with a couple of guys walking down the road. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. There were two men. They were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Now most people, we don't know the exact um, um, location of Emmaus, uh, but the best guess is it was between six and eight miles from Jerusalem, looking at the archaeological evidence. About seven miles from Jerusalem, we don't know which direction it was. They were walking with each other, excuse me, as they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place, Jesus died, empty tomb. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. And their eyes, though, were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, Hey, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? He's indignant that Jesus doesn't understand about Jesus. And he said to him, What things? I love Jesus. He's probably smiling. Well, what are you talking about? What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us, some, uh, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb in the morning. They didn't find his body. And they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went into the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Don't miss that. Jesus says the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God was anew. This was prophesied already. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, I love this, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Wouldn't you like to have been there in that Old Testament seminar? Here's what's amazing, by the way. It's only seven miles. It only take, uh, you know a couple hours to make this walk. That's all, all the time it took for Jesus to show himself in all the scriptures. I get so uh, frustrated with those who say, Jesus is in every verse in the Old Testament. Well, he needed more than seven, ver seven miles to, to explain that if that's the case. He didn't say, look, Genesis 1-1, here I am. Genesis 1-2, here I am. Genesis 1-3, here I am. He said, no, no. Genesis 3-15, there I am. Look at Abraham, the sacrifice, Isaac, here I am. Isaiah 53, here I am, here I am, here I am. And all of that in between those prophecies about the Lord undergird the need for the Jewish nation to exist, which would be the birthing, uh, which would hold the birthing of the Messiah, who is the son of David, the descendant of Abraham. 
as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he were going further. And they said, hey, dude, basically, stay with us. For it's getting toward evening, and the day's nearly over. So they went on, he went on to stay with them, I love. And Jesus goes on, he was explaining the scriptures, their heart burns within them. The point is that Jesus himself showed these men where he himself was, the object focus fulfillment of the Old Testament through the prophets. The gospel has ancient roots that extend all the way back to Genesis. These prophets over and over stood up and said, there's one coming. The last Old Testament prophet, you know who it was, right? The last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist, who said, here he comes, still pointing to the Messiah. Which leads us to the next root of the ancient nature of the gospel. The promises were preserved in Scripture. They were promised through the prophets. They were preserved in Scripture. He says he, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel cannot be fully understood from the New Testament alone. That sounds blasphemous to some people. The gospel, gospel cannot be understood by reading the New Testament alone. First of all, you can't read the New Testament without reading the Old Testament. Have you read the book of Hebrews? It's rooted and anchored in Old Testament prophecy. It's rooted and, ancient and anchored in the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, you can have a very clear first glimpse and understanding of Jesus, but to even say Jesus Christ, the word Christ, anchors him as the anointed one, which goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Jesus doesn't change the meaning of the Old Testament. Be clear. He's the key to answering the question as to why we have the Old Testament. And if you follow the plot line of the Old Testament, it's basically about the promise that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world. Romans 4.13 says, we'll come back to that in a few months or so. God made a promise to Abraham. He was going to bless the whole earth through him and his descendants. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. So what? All of this is contained in what Paul calls, look at the phrase there, the Holy Scripture. Set aside, sanctify. It's the only time Paul uses that designation in the book of Romans. This is the Old Testament set aside, sanctified by God as Scripture, the very Word of God, which is holy. We have to be reminded here of what Paul is discussing regarding the Scripture. He was saying the Old Testament. I cannot resist. Would you please turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. Because you say, well, what does the Old Testament do for us? Now, here's the thing. You cannot understand the gospel from the New Testament alone, but you cannot get to the gospel in the Old Testament alone. You have to come to Christ. You have to get to Jesus. And I love the way Paul describes this process when he's talking to his protege, young Timothy, who's now at this point pastoring uh, the, the, the church at Ephesus that Paul had founded, and he left him there to set things in order. Look down at verse 14. Paul's talking to Timothy about his pedigree, his spiritual pedigree. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned to become convinced of. By the way, that was from his mom and grandmom. Moms, grandmoms, do not ever underestimate the power of your biblical discipleship in the lives and minds of little ones. Knowing from whom you've learned them 
and that from childhood, I love that, you've known, look at this, the sacred writings, what was that? That was not the whole Bible. It hadn't been written when Timothy was a young man. What was the sacred writings? The Old Testament. So what purpose and privilege and, and plan did God have by giving the Old Testament? Look at this. Which are able to give you, love this phrase, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That is so powerful. The Old Testament can't give you the gospel, but it can give you the wisdom that says only Jesus is the gospel. It's connected. Paul wants to make a point right off off the bat, right at the beginning, that what we have is nothing new. This is rooted in the Old Testament, fulfills the Old Testament. This is a complete canon between New and Old Testament. The wisdom that leads to Christ comes from the Old Testament scriptures. Go over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's kind of put this together into how do we get these prophets prophesying? This is so interesting for me to see how the New Testament writers deal with the Old Testament revelation. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, Peter says, As to this gospel, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Listen to this. The prophets of the Old Testament knew something of the coming Messiah, something of the anointed one. They didn't see all the details. It was explained to me once as they were standing on a mountain range and all they could see was the mountaintops. They couldn't see all the valleys and contours in between the peaks. Those were a mystery that were revealed in the New Testament. But they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. By the way, the Old Testament is not only the age of law. Here we find out that the prophets were prophesying of grace will come to you, make careful search inquiries, seeking to know what, 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 what person or, or, or time. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This was Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, prophesying through these prophets of the coming of himself. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and us, by the way. We weren't there when Jesus was alive. In these things which have now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Where do we find the prophecies of the prophets? Answer, in the Holy Scriptures. What is the Holy Scriptures in this? It is the Old Testament. Do you value your Older Testament? Do you read it? hearing and seeing the thought and heart of God. Do you understand that God didn't push delete after Malachi when Jesus came? Think about this. Just don't even try to to keep up. Don't even try to turn. Just listen for a moment. Genesis 3.15 says the Messiah would be born of a woman, a human. Matthew 1.21, 1 Timothy 2.5 say that's exactly what happens. Micah 5.2 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Guess what? Matthew 2.1 says that's exactly where he was born. Isaiah 7.14 says the Messiah would be born to a virgin. Matthew 1.21, guess what? Mary was a virgin. Genesis 12.3 says the Messiah would come through Abraham's lineage. Matthew 1.1, Romans 9.5, the Messiah goes back to Abraham. Genesis 17.9 says the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac. Well, so does Luke 
3.34, say of Jesus. Numbers 24.17 says the Messiah would be a descendant of Jacob. Matthew 1.2, Jesus was a descendant of Jacob. Genesis 49.10 says the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Luke 3.33, he is a lion of the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 says that the Messiah would, would be heir to David's throne. Romans 1, 3 confirms that fact. Uh, Psalm 45, 6 to 7 says the Messiah would be anointed and eternal. Luke 1, 33 says that exactly. Isaiah 7, 14 says the Messiah would be called Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 23 says Jesus was called Emmanuel. Hosea 11, 1 says the Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. Matthew 2.14, where did Jesus escape with his parents to during the slaughter of the innocents? Egypt. Jeremiah 31.15 says the, the massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birthplace. That is exactly what happens in Matthew 2.16 and 17. Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5 says the messenger would come to prepare the way for Messiah and we meet John the Baptist in Luke 3. Psalm 69.8 says the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. John 1.11, he came to his own. His own did not receive him. Deuteronomy 18.15 says the Messiah would be a prophet. Acts 3.20 and 22, Jesus was a prophet. Psalm 2.7 says the Messiah would be declared the Son of God. Look down at Romans 1.4. He was declared the Son of God by the resurrection. Isaiah 11.1 says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2.23, he was a Nazarene. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says the Messiah would bring light to Galilee. Matthew 4, 13 to 16 say this exactly what he did. Psalm 78, 2 to 4. Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 say the Messiah would speak in parables. Have you read Matthew 13? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 say the Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. Luke 4, 18 and 19, he came to heal the brokenhearted. Psalm 110, verse 4 says the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5 says Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2, 6 says the Messiah will be called a king. Matthew 27, 37, he is the king. Psalm 8, 2 says the Messiah will be praised by little children. Matthew 21, 6, he was... Can I keep going? Psalm 41.9 says the Messiah will be betrayed. Luke 22, Judas betrays Jesus. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 says the Messiah would, Messiah's price money would be used to buy a potter's field. Matthew 27, 9, and 10, down to the very specific notion and nomenclature, buys a potter's field. Psalm 35.11 says the Messiah will be falsely accused. Mark 14. 57, he was falsely accused. Isaiah 53, 7 says the Messiah will be silent before his accusers. Mark 15, 4 to 5, he said nothing before his accusers. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says the Messiah would be spat upon and struck and beaten with fists. Matthew 26, verse 67 says that's exactly what happened. Psalm 35, 19 says the Messiah would be hated without cause. John 15, 24 and 25, Jesus was hated without cause. Isaiah 53, 12 says the Messiah would be executed with criminals. Matthew 27, 38, on his right and left were criminals. Matthew 27, 38. Psalm 66, 21 says the Messiah would be given vinegar to drink during his execution. Matthew 27, they raised a sponge soaked in vinegar. Psalm 22 says the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. John 22, verses 25 to 27 say they nailed his hands and feet to the cross. 
Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8 say the Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed. Luke 23, they mocked and ridiculed him. Psalm 22, 18 says the soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments. Luke 23 says that's what happened. Exodus 12, 46 says the Messiah's bones would not be broken. John 19, 33, they went to break his legs and he was already dead. They weren't broken. Psalm 22, 1 says the Messiah would be forsaken by God. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 109, verse 4 says the Messiah would pray for his enemies. Luke 23, 34, Jesus prays for his enemies. Zechariah 12, 10 says the soldiers would pierce would uh, pierce the Messiah's side. John 19, 34, they did that exact act. Isaiah 53, 9 says the Messiah would be buried with the rich. Matthew 27, verses 57 and following tell the story of that potter's field. Psalm 16, verses 10, verse 10 and and Psalm 47, 49, verse 15 say the Messiah would rise from the dead. Matthew 28 says that's what happened. Psalm 24, 7 and 10 says the Messiah would ascend to heaven. Luke 24, 51, he ascended to heaven. Psalm 68, 18, the Messiah would be seated at God's right hand. Luke 22, 69, he's seated at God's right hand. Isaiah 53, 5 to 12 say the Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. Romans 5, 6 to 8, Jesus was a sacrifice for sin. I gave you about 40. There are 300 plus of these. Over 300 of these that Jesus specifically uh, fulfilled. Uh, Statisticians tell us it is beyond the realm of possibility that so much data and detail about Jesus' life could have been prophesied with the specificity with which it's prophesied in the Old Testament, and yet we have it before us right before our eyes. Paul says, stop, don't. This is nothing new. I didn't come to you with a new way of thinking about God, the gospel, or salvation. This is old news. The good news is old news that God promised. I'm not going to leave you in your sin, but you can't do anything about it. I'm going to send my Messiah, my son, to die in your place and give you his righteousness. And if you believe that, you can be a child of God. That didn't start in Matthew, folks. Paul says, this was prophesied, and it's contained where? Give your Bible a hug today. It's contained in the Old Testament. So what? Know this, the gospel can be trusted. It didn't, didn't start up when some guy rose up in Nazareth. Jesus over and over says, Old Testament fulfillment, me. Don't separate the testaments. Also, we should be incredibly grateful to God that we live in a time when the whole scripture is contained in a book we own. Do you realize, do you recognize what a treasure you have? You are a generation so blessed. 200 years ago, few people owned their own Bible. How many do you have? Do you treasure God's Older Testament fulfilled in the Newer Testament, all pointing toward the greatness of the gospel of His Son? Also, it's critical for us to know and study and believe the Old Testament in order to have a proper understanding of the New Testament and the gospel itself. Please read and study and apply and cherish those first 39 books. 
They are important. Gospel is good news, but it's old news. That should give us comfort. That should give us a great reason to trust. In these, we're going to see as we get into chapter 4, this, this new generation of Jews and Gentiles coming together and believing the gospel are going to continually say, well, what about the law? What, what, what about the Old Testament? What about the commands? What about the Torah? What, what about, what about? And Paul's going to say, relax. It all fits. There's no tension and no contradiction. The problem is the, old, the, the, the Jews of the time of Paul had actually gotten so far beyond the intent of the Old Testament, they actually believed if you obey the law, you can be saved. Problem is, Old Testament nowhere says if you obey the law, you can be saved. It says if you are saved, you get to obey the law. We're going to talk specifically about what that means, by the way, tonight. Look at the next phrase in chapter 1, verse 3, concerning his son. These next few phrases, I'm going to tell you, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through these next few phrases. We can't run past those. It's like I said last week, we're, we're, we're those astronauts laying in the, in, the, in the capsule. We've got to flip a bunch of switches and get everything set before we jump into the rest of the epistle, and this is... Every phrase in these opening few verses is so saturated with important meaning that will take fuller understanding and fuller development later in the epistle. We, we can't rush past this. Can I just tell you one more thing? What are you going to say, no? A few minutes ago, we were flipping back and forth in these passages. And I want to confess, when I said turn to First Peter, to hear the hundreds of Bibles being turned and the, the avalanche of sound from you turning the passages of the Scripture, I am the most blessed pastor I know to hear that kind of commitment to your Bibles. Next time I say turn to certain passages, just listen. Isn't it? I, I'm not against... I have my Bible on my little phone. It's not bad. It's just nice to hear that. It's a good thing. We'll stand together and we'll be dismissed. If you have questions about the gospel, our church, what it means to be a member of our church, or anything, you're, you meet my friend John Rosenbaum. He'll be at the prayer room over to my right. And, Anything that we can pray with you about or answer any questions that you may have, we would love to be able to do that. Thanks for giving me a little extra time today. We had communion and other things. Aaron went long on the music. I'm going to blame him. So, <laughs> always blame the music guy, don't you? <laughs> he didn't go long. I love the music. What else are you going to be doing? You say, saving my pot roast from burning. Okay, let's go do that. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us, instructs us, for your whole word, older and newer testament. The gospel is an ancient idea that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world and the scripture unfolds your glory in the saving and redeeming of man. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>